0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's A N G
2: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chesley. This is First Move, and here's you need to know: markets smashed, volatility rises, bond yields jump, and tech stocks slump. Wage wedge. The U.S. Senate dashes President Biden's hopes for a $15 minimum and a hot potato head. The toy rebrand overshadows Hasbro's new content strategy. It's Friday. Let's make a move. To first move. Great to have you with us this French fried Friday. Yes, we're pretty fried at the end of the week, but it's a day where third time is the charm. U.S. regulators are set to green light a third vaccine. JJ's one shot version as soon as today. Meanwhile, the U.S. House, as I've mentioned, set to vote on the third big COVID aid bill with minimum wage sized caveats. And we'll discuss all the details on that. Now, speaking of threes, we have a trifecta great guests coming up to the founder of Fisker Electric Cars on his company's first earnings since snagging a SPAC. We'll explain. Don't panic. The CEO of Hasbro on Life Beyond Toys and from potato shaped to a little pear shaped. The debate over the future of Mr. Potato Head. Plus, when stocks get, as I've described, mashed who better than stock market bull Brian Belsky to talk us through his thoughts? Now, U.S. futures are trying to push higher, but we have been well and truly yo-yoing pre-market. Lots of volatility after yesterday's bond market triggered sell-off. The Nasdaq actually fell some 3.5%. That was the worst day of trade on that market since October of last year. It's now down around 7% from its most recent highs and closer, of course, to a 10% correction territory level. Good news, though, for now. Bond yields are lower today. This after the US 10-year bond yield spiked past 1.6% on Thursday. Still, of course, historically low levels. But the speed of the move that we've seen over the past few weeks matters. And a number of Fed members repeating Fed Chair Jay Powell's stance that this is a healthy thing. It reflects rising growth expectations. But we do see yields on the rise globally as investors to begin pricing in that post-pandemic recovery scenario. And we're seeing digestion issues all over the world too, including, as you can see across some EM nations too, Asia shares taking their biggest drop in some nine months. The Nikkei and the Hang Seng ending the week down Almost 4%. As always, lots to discuss and who better than to discuss it with Christine Romans. Christine, great to have you with us and uh, happy Friday. There's just a lot for investors to digest here. Historically low levels of bond yields, but oh boy, they've moved quickly and a lot of people going. I think is Jay Powell too calm about recovery, too calm about inflation risks going forward too?
1: It's a reminder. Also, the bond market's the boss. We talk about Mm. stocks till the cows come home, but the bond market is the boss. That is the big uh, global market, the oxygen uh, in the system. And the bond market, the yield on the 10-year in particular, and what you saw in the intermediate part of the the belly of the yield, um, sort of interesting here how quickly that move happened. There are plenty of people who say this is just kind of a return to normalcy. I mean, you're right. These levels are still very, very low. But the speed of that move caught a lot of people uh, by surprise, especially when you're starting to see some signs Uh, in the economy, that there is a strengthening. Now, I was curious that yesterday, it was curious that yesterday so many people were saying an improving jobless claims picture was the impetus for yesterday's move. I don't know about that. There are still very high levels of jobless claims in this country, and bad weather could have held back claims for last week. But the idea here, the narrative is the economy will strengthen later this year, and maybe it has the potential to strengthen more quickly than, than Federal Reserve officials and central bankers think, and that could spark inflation. So on the one hand, you have this better picture of growth, which is something we like to see. On the other hand, will that growth spark inflation?
2: Yeah. And we just have to watch this space. Christine, stay with us because much of this, as we've discussed, fueled by financial aid and the knowledge that another bill is coming swiftly, though it looks like a $15 minimum wage won't make it into the final COVID relief legislation. I want to bring in John Howard, too, so we can have a group discussion. Christine, just begin by explaining why this was so important and what it means in the United States at this moment.
1: Well, look, the minimum wage is the bare minimum. And I would say the bare moral minimum that the federal government says you can pay your workers. At $7.25 an hour, you can't live on that. You just can't. And states have already been acknowledging that and raising their minimum wages, voters in those states. The federal government was talking about, the Congress was talking about raising it to $15 over a period of years until 2025. Even at $15, even at $15, you guys, that doesn't match the livable wage in just about any place I can find in the United States. $15 is still the bare minimum floor for survival here. And I think that's really important. You know, you hear people talk about, oh, well, if you're in New York, you know, the minimum wage should be higher than if you are in Kansas. That's true. $15 would still be the bare minimum for those places. This is one estimate here. Look at what you would need to cover the basic cost of living. The living wage in all of these places still way above $15.
2: Yeah, that perspective is so important, John. The irony here is even with the Democrats in charge of the House, with that slim, slim majority in the Senate, taking this out of the final bill will make it more likely that the bill passes.
3: That's true, although, Julia, I think the bill was going to pass, this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill was going to pass either way. Had the uh, $15 minimum wage stayed in the bill, there would have been a lot of pressure on those uh, holdout moderate Democrats, Cinema and Manchin to go along and not sink President Biden's first big legislative priority. Uh, that being the case, uh, now there's not going to be a debate or they're not going to have to put that kind of pressure on that issue. Uh, On them. This is likely to pass the House on a party line vote tonight, and it's on a pretty fast track to move in the Senate. Expect to get it on President Biden's desk by mid March. One uh, added bit of perspective, though, on the minimum wage. Uh, First of all, uh, there's the possibility moving forward uh, of a deal with uh, Republicans, uh, which is the way it was raised the last time Mm. in 2007, some kind of combination of business tax breaks for republicans in return for an increase in the minimum wage that is a possibility the second if such a deal cannot be reached is it's going to be added pressure to get rid of the filibuster uh, which has been uh, what forced the minimum wage into this uh, fast track package under bu- special budget rules if you get rid of the filibuster you don't need to move it under special budget rules and one final bit of perspective and christine alluded to this before um, most americans now live in states where the minimum wage is $10 an hour or higher. There was a Democratic economist who did an analysis in 2019 who said the average effective minimum wage in the United States was about, at that time, $11.80 because of those state and local minimum wage increases that Christine uh, referred to. Of course, in more conservative states, the uh, $7.25 minimum wage remains, but it's higher than that for most Americans right now.
2: You know, what breaks my heart, John, is what you said at the beginning where you said actually it could have passed anyway. There were potential options here where we could have had a debate and we could have done something. And as important as it is, and I think your context is vitally important, that actually a lot of people are being paid more than what the current minimum is and hasn't changed for many years. What's the living wage in the United States and I think we have to keep coming back to that because it does feel like a missed opportunity. Even, John, to your point, if we do come back to this in a year, maybe months, whatever it is, and try and do and tackle this again. Christine, a missed opportunity?
1: You know, look, it's a trade off that lawmakers have to make. And the trade off is between, you know, potentially ruining some small businesses, right? But lifting mm. 900,000 people out of poverty and giving 27 million people a raise. What is the trade-off that lawmakers want to make? The way I see it, the fastest way to elevate the working poor, is to pay them more for the work that they're doing. And let's be honest here. The taxpayer subsidizes this, right, with food stamps and the earned income tax credit. You, the taxpayer in the United States, you are helping to make sure that these people who are working for so little can survive because employers don't pay them more. So that's another part of this whole picture. The, The taxpayer really is a stakeholder in the minimum wage, not just workers and businesses. And one could also
2: argue subsidizing corporations as well and their profitability. John, come in.
3: I just wanted to add to what uh, the point Christine just made about earned income tax credit. Let's not forget what is in what remains in this covid relief bill at one point nine trillion dollars. First of all, fourteen hundred dollar checks per person. That's a lot of money. For low-income families, there's a wage uh, and earnings cutoff for that, but people uh, below, um, uh, people who are making low wages in the United States are going to get those checks. Secondly, very large increase in the child tax credit. So everyone uh, with a child under six, a low-income parent, will get a $300 Radical. monthly check for each child. Uh, third, there's an increase in tax credit for child care. That is a substantial amount of money being put in the pockets of low-income families. And there's also an increase in the earned income tax credit for adults who do, uh, do not have children. So there are many ways in which this bill provide much larger and more immediate assistance to low-wage families than that phased-in minimum wage would have provided.
1: And for how long? In the Wall Street Journal this morning, there's an op ed with Stephen Moore and some other folks saying that that's uh, welfare reform in reverse. So you are already starting to see those other provisions being pushed back from the right as well.
3: I I read it, too. John, how long do these things last? Well, the the uh, child tax credit and the uh, child care tax credit, the earned income tax credit increase are all temporary provisions of this COVID bill lasting either one or two years. What we expect, however, is that in the follow-on legislation uh, that will be provided with uh, infrastructure that is also going to move under fast-track budget rules, Democrats are likely to try to make permanent these benefits. Progressive Democrats think these are vital to rebalancing the American economy and narrowing to some degree the income inequality that characterizes the 21st century American economy. So that is a follow-on legislation. This is a first step. In the COVID relief bill, they're hoping to take the second step uh, in the uh, next couple of months with that next piece of legislation.
2: Yes. First step, more steps required. I know where Christine Romans stands, too, so I don't even need to ask you. (laughs) Thank you for your balance, Sean. Guys, thank you so much. Great to chat to you, as always. Christine Romans, John Harwood there. Thank you. All right, prepare the recovery rotation, lockdown winners could become post-pandemic losers, as the examples of DoorDash and Airbnb perhaps suggest. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, interesting numbers. Both went public around the same time. First set of earnings that we've seen from both of them. Airbnb looking forward and saying, hey, there's going to be a travel recovery. DoorDash saying, look, we made hay while the sun shone kind of during the pandemic. But it could be more challenging going forward.
4: Yeah, exactly, Julia. I mean, both companies are losing money, but I think investors are more forgiving of Airbnb right now because, as you pointed out, the hope is that as people start to travel again, with everyone, with more people getting vaccinated and the you know hopes of uh, you know COVID nineteen as an economic uh, you know uh, depressor, if you will, fading, you will have increased business for airbnb and other companies in the travel industry but with doordash that could be bad news because you might have people looking to go back to restaurants people looking to eat out more and not eat in as much because we have all this kind of pent-up demand to just get back outside after uh, this year of being locked in and shut down so That could be bad news for DoorDash. And, you know, DoorDash obviously has a lot of competition as well. Uber is getting more aggressive in the uh, food delivery area. You still have Grubhub now owned by Just Eat Takeaway. So I think it's going to be challenging for DoorDash.
2: You know, I have to tell you, I have a sparkling clean oven. I don't think I've cooked, actually, in the last 12 months. It could even be longer, Um, Paul. I'm a huge fan of the gig economy in all different forms. But if I take a step back, and you said it in your first sentence, the losses – DoorDash's losses grew, $312 million in the quarter. Airbnb, $3.9 billion lost in the fourth quarter for all the benefits of the gig economy. I look at these losses and I go, does this business model in whatever shape or form work?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Airbnb is spending heavily on marketing, and that may increase because they have uh, you know, a tough competitor in VRBO, owned by Expedia, which is really starting to gain traction. I think, though, with DoorDash, people are looking at uh, you know, potentially more challenges because gig economy workers are, in many respects, trying to demand more worker rights. I mean, we have seen with California... Prop 22 was a victory for companies like Uber and DoorDash and Lyft, that they're still being able to treat their employees as independent contractors. But a lot of those employees will increasingly want more benefits, just like we're seeing with Instacart as well.
2: Yeah, the challenges are only going to grow. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Syria is now confirming U.S. military airstrikes in the eastern part of the country. The target was a site used by Iranian-backed militia, and the strikes were in retaliation for recent rocket attacks on American forces in Iraq. It was the first known time Joe Biden has taken military action as president. Hong Kong and South Korea have both begun their COVID-19 immunization programs. South Korea administered its first shots today to people at long-term care facilities. Hong Kong also kicked off its vaccination program, offering free vaccinations to all residents. CNN's Chrissy lu has more on their rollout.
5: This is the very first day of Hong Kong's COVID-19 vaccine rollout, and it's China's Sinovac vaccine that's being offered up first. I'm standing outside one of five vaccine centers across the territory that are offering the Sinovac jab. About 70,000 people have already signed up. The slots are fully booked for the next two weeks. Uh, the World Health Organization has yet to approve the Sinovac vaccine, but it has been approved by authorities here in Hong Kong for emergency use. Priority will be given to caregivers and health care workers, as well as individuals over the age of 60 and cross-border transport workers like pilots, and drivers earlier we spoke to a number of people who have taken the vaccine and they have no reservations about its effectiveness or safety
1: no not at all because they tested uh, at least you see on on our own races yeah they tested on on chinese people
5: yeah we have the similar physical uh, uh, body so I, I i'm i'm quite i'm very com- confident a recent survey by the University of Hong Kong found that less than 30% of people questioned would accept China's Sinovac vaccine in order to boost vaccine confidence. Hong Kong's top leader, Carrie Lam, took the Sinovac vaccine earlier this week in a live televised event, citing increased demand for the vaccine. The Hong Kong government has said that it will open up an additional 200,000 slots on Monday. Christy Lee CNN, Hong Kong.
2: The Russian embassy says eight of its staff members in Pyongyang had to take extreme measures to return home because of North Korea's strict COVID lockdown. After a 34-hour train and bus trip, they finally reached the Russian border on foot using a hand-pushed rail trolley loaded with luggage. Wow. All right, still to come on First Move, Toy Story. How a simple rebrand fried Hasbro strategy update. And sparking speculation, Apple supplier Foxconn and EV startup Fisker announced they are teaming up on a new car. That's all next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where tech stocks accept for a bounce. After the 3.5% losses the Nasdaq suffered yesterday chalk it up, perhaps to a pullback or stabilisation in bond yields. At least in this session, a lot of the popular Reddit names under pressure, though GameStop is up 15% pre-market, but others are headed for Friday losses. The Redditeers may be ready to rumble again soon. Take a look at this. Deutsche Bank projecting that some $170 billion could be pouring back into equities once new, the new U.S. aid bill is passed. More than 35% of retail investors surveyed plan to spend a quarter of their stimulus checks into equities. Wow. Brian Belsky joins us now. He's the managing director and chief market strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, great to have you with us. Happy Friday. What do you see going on in the markets? There's sort of trade-off between what we're seeing in stocks and the rising bond yields.
6: Wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for having us. We will gladly accept some of that $150 billion. (laughs) Uh, back into equities, you know quite frankly, you know this has been a bull market that we 've been calling since 2010, and we still think it's in place, Julia and it's a misunderstood bull in several different phases. I think now what 's gone on the last couple of weeks, quite frankly is once again another overreaction, something that I think investors should not be surprised about. Uh, with this momentum and rotation and emotion and rhetoric-driven type trading and strategies, Julia, you have to kind of take two steps back and remember that interest rates tick up because the economy is improving. And that's our house call at BMO Financial Group. It's our call with respect to investment strategy and how we're running client portfolios. And with respect to our investment strategy research, we're positioned accordingly for the next 12 to 18 months. However, I think the biggest fallacy, quote-unquote, with respect uh, to this whole interest rate scenario, is that stocks actually go up when interest rates increase, especially when we're coming off such uh, tremendous lows in in interest rates. And again, I think it's a sign that the economy is improving, that fundamentals are improving, and investors should be overweight, we believe, equities over all asset classes right now.
2: So what you're saying is don't look at rising bond yields. Even the magnitude of the move relative to where they were before is big. And it's been quite quick. I think we have to bear that in mind when we see the reaction that we're seeing from stock market investors. But you're saying, look, when it's good news, when it's recovery, when it's economic growth, rising bond yields can be positive for stocks.
6: So here's what, here, here would be my retort. I'm sorry. Uh, if 2020 taught us anything, it was unprecedented price performance in the stock market in both directions. If 2021 is going to tell us anything, we're going to see unprecedented earnings growth. And then let's dovetail that into what's happened in interest rates. Clearly, interest rates in the 10-year Treasury was not going to stay below 50 basis points forever. And on a relative basis, you're absolutely right. Uh, You can do the math. The law of small numbers makes that look very big. But from a duration standpoint, uh, you have to kind of, again, take two steps back and look at, if you include the financial crisis, if you include the financial crisis, Julia, the average 10-year treasury in the United States of America since 1953 is 5.7%. If you don't include it, it's 6.3%. That's perspective. And <laughs> so we believe that the Fed is doing its right, right, the right job. It is continuing to monitor employment. And until unemployment claims drop precipitously, We're not going to see real inflation in the United States for several more quarters, if not years.
2: You can understand, though, why investors are pushing back a bit here on Fed policy and Jay Powell saying, look, we're going to focus on jobs and we're going to ignore inflation. And it's okay, perhaps, if if stock markets continue to go up, because to your exact point, bond markets, uh, sorry, yields are so incredibly low relative to the past. There's a it makes sense for them to call into question what the Fed's saying in the face of yet more stimulus, Uh, the recovery that we're seeing, the speed at which we're recovering, vaccines. You understand why they're sort of challenging him?
6: That's exactly right. And I think when the calendar turned to 2021, people thought the return to normalcy is on. And we cautioned people when we put out Mm. our forecast in November of 2020, saying that 2021 is not going to be this return to normalcy. And I think people's fears in the market, quite frankly, is because they missed the moves in the market in 2019 and 2020, And they're blaming tech stocks. We still think tech stocks, from a longer-term perspective, should be accumulated, should be a core part of your portfolio. And so don't be selling your Apple and Amazon and Google here. In fact, you should be shoring up your positions on these weaknesses.
2: So buy on dips.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day... You want to be diversified and be more of a stock picker, not rely on the overall indexes, but really uh, employ themes and fundamental research. Bottoms up stock picking. It's back.
2: (laughs) And Brian, what are you telling investors about these meme stocks and about Bitcoin? Because everybody's talking about digital currencies right now. Have I missed the boat? Should I get Mm -hmm. in? What on earth are these things? What are you saying to uh, investors?
6: Wonderful question. We would say this. We don't believe that Bitcoin should be part of your longer-term asset allocation. It should be in a separate account, Julia. And anytime you sign up for an investment account with a wealth management professional, it tells you, be prepared to lose money. And you have to, when you invest, be prepared that you're actually going to potentially lose money. And I don't think people that are buying Bitcoin right now are prepared to lose money. It's a supply-demand quotient. I'm fearful that it doesn't have a tangible, fundamental value. So place it in another account that... Say if you have $1,000, you don't mind losing that $1,000 because given the momentum in the supply-demand equation, what's going on in Bitcoin, I fear that it's more about momentum and tactics and trading versus fundamentals right now in Bitcoin.
2: Very quickly, Brian, do you think, still think that Bitcoin, for example, could go down to zero based on what you just said?
6: Well, all you have to, this is perspective. Go back and look at 2017 and 2018. When the bids drop, uh, the price goes down. And so whether or not it goes to zero, it's not a zero or 50,000 type uh, of price. Anytime that you're focusing more on a price of, of an instrument, whether or not it's a stock bond or Bitcoin, uh, for instance, focus on what it's saying fundamentally. And I think that's why it's so hard for investors to kind of grapple what to do with Bitcoin. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. The economic basis, the fundamentals here, we've still got to get on top of. Brian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Brian Belsky there from BMO Capital Markets. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running on both the last trading day of the week and for the month of February, of course, too. Next week, we march 4th We've got to get to today first. Futures searching for direction pre-market. Tech is higher, though, as we've discussed after yesterday's sell-off. Investors trying to factor in, I think, hopes of stronger economies on the one hand, while at the same time trying to price in the implications of higher bond yields and at what point they pressure stock performance. Fresh volatility, too, in Bitcoin, the leading cryptocurrency on track for its worst weekly drop in almost a year. Losses today, too, for rivals Ether, XRP and Litecoin. Litecoin, you can see, down almost 9%. All right, now to Hasbro and their transformation into a digital entertainment powerhouse. But first, we need to talk about this.
1: Hey, it's Hasbro. Hasbro makes toys. What's new, Hasbro? Hasbro. Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with their
2: own cars and trailers. That's what's new. See? Oh, yes, we're going there. There's been quite a storm after some elements of their media reported Mr. Potato Head was being cancelled with the Mr. being dropped from packaging. Well, Hasbro's confirmed, although it could be branded Potato Head, as you can see, you can still buy a Mr., or a Mrs. Potato Head, so don't panic. Brian Goldner is chairman and CEO of Hasbro, and joins us now. Wow, Brian, I did not anticipate this being where we started this conversation, but I do think we have to uh, we have to talk about it. A PR problem or PR perfection? Quite frankly, because everyone's talking about Potato Head, Mr. Mrs.
7: You know, Potato Head has been a part of our company, Hasbro and a part of childhood, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, mm-hmm. since the 1950s. And Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head are not going anywhere. They're still a prominent part of the brand, and they are still prominent in kids' lives and as part of the play. Our team is offering uh, the rest of and an additional Potato Head family members. And so that's really the, the push now. We hear from parents and kids. They want to expand on the creative play of the brand and so, yes, it's uh, terrific to get this kind of publicity. And uh, people should know that Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head are available and ready to come home and play with, uh, with your family.
2: What's this about uh, gender neutrality, equality, inclusivity? Because it's oh, right, it's just, perhaps, yeah, the to idea, make a statement. The, yeah.
7: Yeah, we're just, just talking about the idea that you're going to have, uh, as part of the Potato Head family, you can now have extended family members. You can have lots of children and uh, sisters and brothers. You can have uncles. You can have aunts. So lots of different family members can enter the scene if it's the entire Potato Head family.
2: Yeah, perhaps in a more inclusive world, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And that's something to think about too, um, Brian. Let's talk about the biggest strategy here, which is um, what you're doing. You've broken down Hasbro into three different parts. We've still got the quite powerful toys and the brands that we've got there, but you're also going to try and become a far bigger, I think, Content creator. Talk to me about that part of the business because this is incredibly exciting and you clearly have the intellectual property to play with here.
7: Yeah, well, what we wanted to do first and foremost, we had been building a Wizards of the Coast gaming business for quite some time. And we felt that we wanted to give people a view to just the size of that business and the growth around wizards and digital. And then you're right, we have a, a classic Hasbro consumer products business that includes both traditional toys and games and then our consumer products licensing. But about a year ago, we acquired Entertainment One, known as E-One, and we're really out to set a course to develop Hasbro IP and storytelling. We have more than 30 projects that are now being developed around Hasbro IP, everything from future Transformers movies to now Dungeons & Dragons movie, live action Dungeons & Dragons television, a whole new approach to Power Rangers that includes a young adult TV series as well as a Future feature film, uh, a new season of uh, completely reinvented uh, Power Rangers for kids, uh, a My Little Pony animated feature film that comes out this fall that will be on Netflix and uh, for their 200 million uh, subscribers. So you're right. It's a complete reinvention, the opportunity to bring our brands to consumers around the world and very powerful storytelling and then connect that to gaming and to uh, play patterns and consumer play and entertainment experiences.
2: Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? In an ever increasingly digital world, you're sort of pinpointing the areas that people want to see brands that we love, like My Little Pony, like Mr. Potato, in many ways, Transformers, another one, as you mentioned there, but just taking those and monetizing them in different ways. What do you see as being, if we fast forward, say, five, Five years. What do you see the breakdown of the of the profits being in terms of these three business units? What what becomes core here? Is it that you can provide content to the Netflixes, the Disney Pluses of this world, or is this still a crucial part of of toys and those brands that we remember that will remain a part of Hasbro?
7: Well, it's both of those things. You're exactly right. I mean, first and foremost, it is an opportunity, and we are. Uh, Selling to every platform we have uh, shows that will be going on the air on Amazon, a whole new live action G.I. Joe television series, as well as to Netflix. We talked about um, My Little Pony, the feature film coming this fall and future TV series. So we'll be developing our business there. And then, of course, it links to our consumer products business and to bring play to people around the world in our gaming business which is growing you know, really so rapidly. Uh, people are really engaged with our brands and you know, we're really seeing that growth around the world. So uh, our opportunity is to recognize that people increasingly are going to be buying products in a digital setting. Our e-commerce business just went past $1 billion. We expect that e-commerce and omni-channel selling could be as much as 50% of our revenues by 2025. We expect growth this year of double digits. Uh, We'll see double digit growth from our Entertainment One business, double digit growth from our Wizards gaming business. And we should see ahead of industry growth for our toy business. So mid to high single digits growth for the toys and games business and consumer products. So, uh, you know, again, coming off of a a year of COVID, we clearly were impacted in the fourth quarter. We grew and we saw our TV and film business grow 20 percent in the fourth quarter. As we began to get back into productions, Um, as you know, for much of the year last year, TV productions, live action and film were closed while our animation production was able to continue.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the jewels in the crown here is the master toy licenses for, for Marvel and for Star Wars, of course. And you clearly benefited from Disney Plus and the accelerated viewers and people taking those subscriptions. I saw the Star Wars toys sales rose 70% uh, year over year for you guys, which is which yeah. is pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, I want no, to ask you a question.
7: Been, you know, oh, sure, sorry.
2: No, no, please. What were you going to say?
7: I was just going to say the Mandalorian has proven yes. that um, that inflection point of people watching stream content en masse, the opportunity to eventize that and bring merchandising and innovation to life and creativity in the product lines, we're seeing that great success. We also saw it with our Transformers brand, we had an uh, adult-oriented uh, animation series on Netflix called War for Cybertron, and same thing, um, the inflection point of so many people at once watching these shows in a stream format that we were able to activate that with global retailers and bring that to life in play and collectability.
2: Brian, I've been asking uh, every uh, CEO that comes on the show their views on digital currencies and bringing perhaps a piece of the cash that they've got on the balance sheet and investing in Bitcoin a la Tesla. Um, In your case, I'm going to ask you if one day I'll be able to buy a Mr. Potato Head or a Baby Yoda in in Bitcoin. What's your view?
7: I think I imagine at some point uh, people will be able to buy that. We're not going to put Bitcoin up on our balance sheet at any point in the near future as we see it. Um, We also are very happy to have uh, $1.7 billion of cash on our balance sheet. And we like that an awful lot.
2: <laughs> nice opportunity to sell that point too, Brian. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Fascinating to chat Thank to you, you Brian Gardner, Chairman and CEO of Hasbro there. All right, up next, shock announcement. We get the latest on Foxconn and Fisker's electric vehicle deal. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Electric vehicle startup Fisker and Apple partner Foxconn are teaming up to develop an electric car. Production is slated to begin in late 2023, but details are pretty scarce. Fisker's CEO says, quote, this vehicle is so revolutionary that we have to keep it a secret until the launch in end of 2023. It might be too futuristic for some. The vehicle would be Fisker's second. Its first model is the ocean, which is due to go into production in late 2022. Joining us now, Henrik Fisker, CEO and founder and chairman of Fisker. Great to have you with us, Henrik. I can cope with the details. It will not be too futuristic for me. Tell me about it. What can you tell us?
8: Hi, good morning, Julia. Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, you, you know, the idea with this uh, vehicle is really to revolutionize uh, the automotive industry and think completely different. You know, the vehicles we drive today was was really, you know, fundamentally designed 50 years ago. You know, we haven't really changed the fundamental proportions or the way a vehicle worked for at least 50 years. Um, so the idea here is really to find out what is the vehicle of the future going to look like? and specifically for people living in urban areas, uh, people who use the vehicle for commuting, you know, how does that vehicle really look? And how can we create a vehicle which actually goes across social borders? Because today, the automotive industry have kind of boxed themselves into a segmentation. So when you see a vehicle coming out, it's always like, well, it fits in this segment. So if you're an accountant with this salary, you buy this vehicle. We're trying to get out of that box. And an example of vehicles that, kind of have broken that in the past would be the original Volkswagen Beetle or the Mini Cooper, Mm. which, you know, were bought by celebrities, photo models, pop stars, normal people. And that's kind of the type of vehicle we want to create together with Foxconn. And, And Foxconn, of course, have some experience in creating revolution together with other companies.
2: I was going to ask you that. Is that the point with Foxconn then? Actually, you don't have a car yet, but you're going to produce one, you're going to make one with Foxconn. And we're still in the design process.
8: Yeah, you know, the idea here is that, that Foxconn have, are, are the biggest uh, manufacturer in the world. Uh, they have one of the biggest supply chains in the world. And they start on a clean sheet of pe- piece of paper like we do. And we really want to try to innovate. So we don't want to take anything from the past with us. We're going to go completely new on this one. Of course, our Fisker Ocean is coming out next year with our first vehicle, which we do together with Magna, uh, which is getting produced in Europe. But this vehicle is going to be a completely different type of almost like a mobility device um, that we really want to be able to uh, for everybody to buy. It doesn't matter where you are on the social ladder. It doesn't matter what your, your income is. This should just be a vehicle that is perfect for urban living and, and commuting. And, you know, Foxconn, they are going to take the approach where they're going to go out and see how can we take, uh, you know, how can we make efficiency? How can we take cost out of the supply chain and out of manufacturing? So I can get to do a premium design and and get this vehicle on the market for a a very low cost, much lower cost than the Fisker Ocean.
2: I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to ask the same question in a different way. You mentioned the clean sheet of paper. Is is the sheet of paper clean at this stage? You've announced a car is coming and it's going to be super exciting, but there just isn't a car yet, nor have we designed it.
8: No, I've already. So I've already designed the car. So I've already designed Uh it. So Yes, absolutely. It's designed. It's there. It's already there.
2: OK, good. I just wanted to make sure there was a car that was coming, which is great. Are you in talks with Apple to potentially produce with Foxconn the Apple car? Because there have been all sorts of rumors about this. Can you confirm or deny?
8: You know, I don't know anything about Apple uh, or their car. You know, they're very secretive about it, too. So I, I don't know anything about what they're doing. Uh, we are working with Foxconn, and you know, Foxconn is independent manufacturer and uh, supply chain master, I would say. And you know we're, we're, we're making a vehicle that ultimately, I got inspired by the big tech companies like Sony and Apple thinking about making yeah. a car. And I actually started designing it with that in mind, and it kind of gave me a lot of new ideas of what could a car look like if it came from a tech company rather than a car company. That's how it came about. I talked to the chairman of Foxconn, Young, and uh, we we just said, why don't we do this? Why don't we make this vehicle that is so different, so unique? And that's kind of how the project came about.
2: Talk to me about target audience and audience and to... Exactly your point, I think, about creating something unique and it being a tech company rather than a car company. The Lucid CEO said to me this week, right now there's just a, a one-horse race and, and this is Tesla. Where does Fisker stand relative to Tesla? And are you going to put something on the market here that a Tesla driver now wouldn't go, oh, I'll buy this instead because it's so different. It's an entirely different marketplace you're, you're targeting.
8: So, you know, um, if you think about the global Market of automobiles yearly, we produce about probably close to 80 million vehicles, and only about two million of those are electric vehicles right now, and less than half a million of those are Teslas. So, you know, we don't really just go after Tesla customers because that wouldn't be enough of a market for us. We are planning to sell 250,000 of, of these vehicles together with Foxconn. Um The real market is actually getting people out of the gasoline car and into yeah. this car. <laughs> and I think that takes a different approach. You know, I think a lot of people uh, now and in the future, fortunately or unfortunately, have less emotions about cars. And I think they want sustainable, clean cars. You know, our fiscal Erosion is going to be the most sustainable vehicle in the world. So will this vehicle. That's part of our brand pillars. So this vehicle will really be aimed at people who is ready to take the step into the future with us and it's going to look nothing like a Tesla or any other vehicle currently on market it's not going to fit into any market segment it'll be priced below30,000 dollars which by the way you're the first one I told, told that to That's um, the key. so it's going to be an affordable vehicle you know and yeah. for, for everybody almost
2: yeah if you're going for that bigger audience the mass market audience then the price is key and thank you for giving us the scoop on the price. And I await the details of the actual car, Henrik. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Henrik Fisker, CEO and founder and chairman of Fisker. Always great to chat. Thank you. We're back after this. For 38 seasons, Alex Trebek hosted the American game show, Jeopardy! until his passing last November at the age of 80. In an inspiring tribute, his family have donated a large portion of his wardrobe to charity. The Doe Fund helps underserved Americans find work and training and received some of his suit collection, along with shirts, sweaters and more. I spoke to Alex's son, Matthew, about this wonderful gesture.
3: Here is the host of Jeopardy,
9: Alex Yeah, My dad was very down to earth, very hardworking. You know, he was a pretty, I guess he stayed pretty private. If he wasn't working at Jeopardy or, or doing other things, he was usually home uh, doing a lot of handyman stuff around the house. Um, so he would always have a different project that he was working on and, uh, you know, fixing various things. Response Did you come up with the right one? No. What is, we love you out That's very kind. <laughs> Thank you.
8: Costia, 1995. You're left with five bucks. Okay.
2: Talk to me about the decision to donate some of his clothes and, and why the charity that you chose is so important.
9: Um, so, just, uh, you know, after my dad's passing, uh, I spoke to Rocky, who's one of the producers and one of my dad's uh, best friends. We were talking about what could be a good uh, option to, to do with all the suits and the Doe Fund uh, really just instantly kind of came to mind.
2: This is a, an organization that provides clothes to individuals who've been formerly in prison. In many cases, they've never worked in the legal economy before. Now they're going for job interviews and actually just being able to give them a, a suit, a tie, a shirt, never mind one that's been owned by your father, perhaps makes all the difference in terms of confidence in going into that interview.
9: Absolutely. So, like as you said, you know, getting guys back on their feet, uh, being put into, you know, various uh, programs, whether it be, uh, you know, culinary, for example. And I think just having a suit and having, um, you know, kind of feeling a little bit better about themselves, uh, knowing their past, and looking to make a, you know, more different changes in their life.
2: Have you had any feedback? From any of those that actually received an item of clothes.
9: Yeah, yeah, and they've, it's all been positive, and everybody's been, you know, very excited, and I think it's been well received, which is, uh, you know, really good, and I think that um, my dad would feel really good about it as well.
2: I want to talk about you as well because you are a restaurateur. You are successful in your own right. Talk to me about what the last year has been like? Because for any restaurant operating in New York City, it's been a huge challenge.
9: Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's been just that, but it's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of learning how to be flexible with change and, um, you know, kind of taking whatever is is being thrown at us right now and just trying to push through and, uh, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel.
8: Today, Jeopardy begins its 36th season on the air, and I'm happy to report I'm still here.
2: Did you grow up watching game shows, and did you watch your father on TV?
9: And uh, Victor? Yeah, I definitely watched him on TV. Um, I don't think I would say that I watched a lot of game shows, but. I, would <laughs> I was going to
2: ask you whether, whether Jeopardy was your favorite game show.
9: Or whether you yeah, would think, just say it was. I think, <laughs> oh, I, think, I think that would be my favorite game show.
3: So
8: long, so long, everybody. So long, everyone. So long. So, long, so long,
2: everybody. legacy lives on. A beautiful gesture, I thought. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at J Chesley CNN. That's it for us. Stay safe this weekend. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.